Well, this morning we are back briefly, because I'll just preach this Sunday and then I won't be in the pulpit again for a while when Chris gets back. Um, but I'll back to the Gospel of Mark. Now, one of, the, one of the kids, I think it was in junior church, said that Pastor Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. That's not true. Uh, I didn't do it. I've just been reading it, but I can see the connection, obviously. <laughs> so I'm identifying with it just a little bit myself as I go through the Gospel of Mark. But Mark, as you remember, we, we started in it. We're in chapter 3 this morning. We're just going to do one, one little section of Scripture, but... Remember we said that it's really like the newspaper version of the gospel. It's very brief, it's very fast moving and so forth. And the word that is used most commonly is the word immediately. John, I mean Mark would say immediately they did this and immediately they did that. He uses that word more often than any other gospel writer. And I think almost more than all of them put together in the New Testament. So it's a great passage, and we saw in the, just the first couple of chapters, it skips totally over all the Christmas stuff, and then talks about Christ's baptism, and temptation in the wilderness, and then miracles that he did, and the miracles were showing consistently his authority over sickness, over ill, uh, over kinds of sicknesses that you would never think people could be healed from, like leprosy and things of that nature, but they were after him. They were after him. The Pharisees and those who did not like Jesus began to sit on the front rows of the synagogues when he was preaching and teaching. People were amazed at his, at his ability. But um, that resulted in really us moving fast forward. The last miracle he did was to heal somebody on a Sabbath day. And he did it volitionally, without moving a hand, so to speak, just by thinking it, if you go back and look at the passage. So they couldn't really pin it on him, but they were after him anyway. They wanted him dead, the religious leaders of Israel. So you could think of Christ's ministry as in three years, as we know. The first year was really a period of obscurity. The second year... He wasn't so obscure. That was a period of favored ministry. People were coming out to hear him. They liked him and so forth. And then the third year, which is now the last year, which we are into today, was really the period of his ministry where there was opposition. The authorities were after him and so forth and so on. So we find ourselves in Mark chapter 3. And the main point of what I want to speak about this morning is a course about the apostles and their selection and all that went around that. But these were the men, when Jesus went off the scene, who would be the guys who take over. They would be the ones who would change the world. It's very instructive. There are three lists in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all give a list of those 12 apostles. And then the book of Acts also gives a list in addition to that, too. So there's actually a total of four lists. We're looking at just the one that's in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3. So you think of these guys, it's very instructive for us as we come to the place of selecting elders or deacons for our church or spiritual leaders of any kind. It's very instructive for us as we come to our national elections in our country as we think of those kinds of things. So briefly, before we get started... What could we say about these guys? There was no group of men in human history that made more of a difference and turned the world upside down than the apostles did, from Peter on down. 
But also at the same time, no group of men were more unlikely to do that. If you were to pick guys off the street, you couldn't pick anybody that would be perhaps in this category. Because they just, these guys, not the kind of guys you would expect to be. They were, they had very little or no education. They had no notoriety. They were not wealthy. They had no special giftedness. They were mainly just fishermen and a few other people, some farmers and so forth. No unusual abilities. They were just, as it's been said, ordinary people. Ordinary people and ordinary people that probably didn't even get along with themselves that well. So how is it that Jesus would turn this worldwide movement called Christianity over to these men? Well, let's go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3 and verse 7. We're going to read the sections from verse 7 down to verse 19. That's as far as we'll go this morning. First of all, I want you to see as we look at it that Jesus' ministry was growing. In verses 7, it says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. So, keep in mind this is the third year of Christ's ministry. Things are not going to go so well from now on. But crowds are coming from all over the place. He used to meet in the synagogue. That was a logical place where people met to talk about God, worship, and he would talk about the new covenant. But, so many people came to the synagogues and wherever he went they began to follow him that they had to meet at the beach because it was so full of people everywhere. went. So they, it says um, they withdrew to the sea. In other words, they withdrew from the synagogues. They withdrew from meeting in the religious places. They withdrew from where he had held his last miracle there of, of healing the man with a withered hand. And they went down to the seashore, which would be the Sea of Galilee, which is just a little, you know, a little tiny body of water. It's really more or less just really a, a lake there. And his miracles followed him because the people were hearing about it and they were coming out to see where Jesus was. But you know what? It's interesting was they came. They came not just in crowds but in multitudes. The Greek word, there's two Greek words for a crowd. One means a smaller crowd. The other means a multitude. And that's the word that's um, used in the reference to these crowds that were coming to see Jesus. Great multitudes, it says in verse 7. It says where they came from. And I, I drew a little map to show you where they came from to kind of get the idea how big this was. So you see the blue circle in the center is, is Galilee, and that's where the little lake of Galilee is. You can row across it in an hour or so. It isn't all that big if the weather's pretty good. But people weren't coming now from just around Galilee. Galilee would be kind of like the Gig Harbor area. But they were coming from all over the place, up to the north by Tyre and Sidon. You've got a big red circle, kind of shows that area where people were coming from there. Down to the south, we have, uh, we have Jerusalem and Judea, that area. The area across the, um, the, the river of the Jordan, there's up to the right, says Perea there. People from there, and in Idumea, down to the south, even farther than I could get the circle to cover that whole area. People were coming a long ways, well over 100 miles in many cases, and not easy to travel. So it's quite a bit different than people that just came with inside 
that blue little circle earlier. So Jesus' ministry was causing a big, big stir. People were coming from all over the place to see what was going on. Now, when you get a group like that, do you think they all have the right motivation? What was their motivation? It tells us a little bit about it. They were coming there because they had heard about what Jesus was doing. And uh, it's always a good thing because, you know, you can get people into the church if you have a circus there, but that doesn't mean you'll keep them there, and it's not the right reason either. And not that we have a circus in the church, but we have to be careful about those things. I think of our living nativity. I think a lot of people come because it's, it's a big stir and people are interested. And it doesn't mean that they all understand the gospel even know what's going on there. But hopefully the message will get through. We work every year to make the gospel clear in that. By the way, there's no living nativity this year because of our building project, hopefully getting started soon here. But sometimes... There are thrill seekers that come. They've heard about these things. They want to see it for themselves. Sometimes they see Jesus as kind of a celebrity, you know, and they want to see him and touch him. And uh, some people want the health and the wealth, and that's really all they're concerned about. They weren't really concerned necessarily about God and the deeper needs of the soul, which is what Jesus was really there about. So in verse 9, move down to verse 9 now, it says that he told his disciples that a boat should be made ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. So as He finds himself there. He finds so many people coming, and they want to touch him. They want to touch Jesus, because maybe they'll get healed. And um, I think we have some modern-day faith healers. They're kind of charlatans. They do almost the same thing. People will come by the thousands, by the thousands. But let me say, if they really work, why don't they go to the hospitals? Why don't they go to the funeral homes and raise the dead? Well, clearly, here... It got, to be, it got to be so busy that Jesus had to tell his disciples, look, I need a boat. I need a getaway boat just in case they press me to the water and I'm drowning or something like that. So they, they got a boat for him just in case there was a need like that because they came closer and closer to the water's edge. But it was also possibly a preaching platform so that he could preach from the boat without fear of them scrambling out to where he was and so forth. It just shows you how many people were really coming. But you might ask yourself, well, if Jesus multiplied the loaves, if he raised the dead, if he did all these miracles, why couldn't he do something just to keep the people back from um, rushing him? Well, it's interesting that Jesus never really did any miracle for his own benefit. He always did it for others. So he seems to have held off for perhaps that reason, someone suggested. But his healings caused people who had afflictions to rush to him. That was the big thing. And uh, by the way, the word affliction, there's an interesting word in the Greek language. The word affliction, if you look it up in the Greek, actually is from a root word meaning a whip, a whip. So it means that the people who had some of these afflictions It's almost like a whip to them. And the implication is that it was driving them. 
like a scourge. It perhaps even caused them to, to consider their relationship to God, which it sometimes does. And maybe you've had a sickness like that too, something that's really painful, and you just can't get rid of it. It's, it's almost like a scourge. So uh, Gil said, sometimes our health issues are the result of sinful living. And then we know that when the health issues come, because they're like a scourge just a little bit. Someone said people were keener on health than holiness. And some people would rather go to the spa than to the Savior first. Well, that's kind of the way it was, but Jesus didn't turn them away because he had the opportunity to preach and to illustrate what he was talking about. So we come to verse 11 now. In verse 11, there was still opposition from Satan. Not that that happened, didn't happen before. It certainly did, but it happens again here. It says, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, that's Jesus, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Now, if you remember before, the demons would recognize who Jesus was. They called him the Son of God. By the way, do you know how often the disciples called him the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark? Zero times. The demons are the first ones to call Jesus the Son of God. The first human to call Jesus the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark is actually a Roman soldier in chapter 15. So the disciples had some growing to do in the Gospel of Mark, and of course that did happen later. But I'm just saying that to say that they weren't the keenest guys that you would expect to find to be uh, given the responsibility of um, continuing the gospel after Jesus was gone and reaching the world. So uh, <clears throat> it says the crowds fell upon him there as they were coming to him. And the demons um, were told not to say anything, not to do anything. They were told they were not to speak at all because Jesus didn't want them to 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 call him the Son of God in front of others because he did not want demon press. In other words, he didn't want to be supported by Satan's world. Now, I know that sometimes today people say, well, demons are just a mythical thing. They're in the Bible, yes, but they're not really a true kind of thing. And so in our scientific and um, erudite society we live in, perhaps we dismiss that as just myth. But they were real. And they were much more open in a society that accepted them than they would be in a society that rejects the idea like America today. But that doesn't mean that they're not at work. That doesn't mean that they're not out there. That doesn't mean that there aren't some in this room we can't see. That they have some way of trying to vex us here. But whenever these unclean spirits, which would be like demons, were in people, Jesus would often cast them out, and then the people who were demon-infested would probably fall on the ground and the demon would speak through them, you are the Son of God. But Jesus didn't want that at all. He didn't want that. So uh, as you move along, we find things are happening very quickly, very quickly here. We find now in verse 13, the movement to the selection of the twelve, which is really the heart of this. That's all just a, a lead into it. Jesus needed to get the twelve going because he didn't have much time left before he would go to the cross. 
So in verse 13, it says that he went up on the mountain and summoned those he himself wanted, and they came to him. This was a night of prayer. In fact, I think it is the Gospel of Matthew tells us that it was a, he spent all night there in prayer. One of the other accounts. But, but Mark doesn't tell us that. He just tells us he goes up on a mountain and he comes back down. It's just assumed that you probably already knew that because Mark is fast moving. But keep in mind that Jesus had been healing people left and right. He had had crowds and multitudes around him now. And when the day is over, I think you would be exhausted. And Jesus had a physical body that was still subject to exhaustion. But he climbed the mountain. He climbed the mountain. Uh, we were on quite a few mountains when we were in Switzerland. One of them was Mount Pilatus. Pilatus is short for Pontius Pilate. They believe that Pontius Pilate was thrown into the lake there in Lucerne, buried there. That's a, a myth, really. I don't believe that at all. But So they named the mountain Pilatus, and there's the Pilatus bond that goes up there at a 45 degree, and it's kind of a rail device. It's like a, it's like a streetcar that goes 45 degrees up. So we rode this thing up, and it's up there, and I think we were up around 10,000 feet when we got out of it. You know? and, and you're going on along the sides of the cliff. You know, It's kind of scary. And um, you look right over there. But I had to say to myself, that's a long ways up. And then our, in our hotel, the, uh, the, the gal that was kind of running the desk said that her, her boyfriend would run to the top of that mountain. And she would take the tram. <laughs> <laughs> so she couldn't keep up. I don't see how anybody could go up that mountain and not be totally exhausted, if not even make it at all, period. But we made it because we were on the tram thing, the vernacular they call it. But um, Jesus went up on the mountain. And the mountains are not as tall as perhaps uh, Pilatus is here in, in Israel. Some think this is possibly the mountain where Jesus did the Sermon on the Mountain. I've been on top of that too, and it still is a long ways up, especially after a long day. But Jesus went up on top of the mountain and he spent the entire night in prayer there. So he needed to because he was going to select these guys. Now looking back, we can say that the, the men that Jesus chose, they, they came in stages. The disciples during the early part of the ministry I just heard about it. Andrew went and got his friend to come, you know, and that was Peter. So Andrew heard about Jesus first, and he brought Peter, and there were others that came as well. <clears throat> and they heard about Jesus, and then they went back to their fishing or whatever they were doing. They came and they went, they came and they went. That was stage one. Stage two was a little bit later when they began to follow Jesus full time, and so they, they followed him full time being disciples. A disciple means a learner, someone who learns under someone else. There were lots of disciples. There were hundreds of them that would say in some way they were learners. But these were part of a larger group now that seemed to follow Jesus on more of a full-time basis in the second step. They would leave home and become followers of Christ or disciples on a regular basis in a group. And then thirdly, there was the point in which they became appointed as apostles instead of disciples. 
which means to be one who is sent with a message and you have the authority to bring that message. That's what we're looking at here right now. This is the third year of Christ's ministry. This is where this third stage takes place. And in spite of the exhaustion of the day, Jesus hikes up to the top of this mountain and he spends the entire night in prayer. How could he do that? I don't know except to say it was important. Perhaps the Father sustained him in an unusual way. It doesn't say that. But it tells us one thing. It tells us about the importance of prayer, doesn't it? The importance of prayer. Even Jesus prayed. Now, did Jesus know all things? Yes. He was God. He voluntarily, perhaps in some cases, pulled back from that a little bit, it is said, but, but he could have known all things and so forth and so on. So and prayer is important. Prayer is important when you are selecting leaders. Let me ask you if you have been praying for those who were, you voted for recently. Have you spent any time in prayer for our country? God knows we need it. And as you heard the president say when that pastor got out of prison, the president said, if anybody needs it, it's me that probably needs it more than anybody else. And, and we need to pray for our leaders. Jesus needed to pray for those disciples because they were going to get hit hard eventually. The importance of prayer comes out of this as well. And for our own church leaders too. Not just those who are pastors, but our, our, our elders who are kind of like lay leaders and, and deacons and, and Sunday school teachers and all of our salt group leaders. They all need prayer. You need to be in prayer. And I'm not saying go up on top of uh, Mount Rainier and pray all night. We're probably not as strong as Jesus. But there's a lesson to be learned there, isn't there? So it says he spent the whole night in prayer and he prayed even though he had divine knowledge of all things. He prayed in the divine mystery of his divinity and humanity, I would say. And that's a good example for us. He prayed. If Jesus prayed, we should pray. We're all guilty of that, myself included. It's easy to slip past that. And the next morning... He chose whom he wanted there. So uh, he says he wanted them and they came to him. And I just had to look at that. He says he chose whom he wanted. He knew exactly who they should be. He chose whom he wanted. That so much reminds us of other passages in the New Testament that speak about salvation. It says he chooses us. We don't choose him. It says... Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. We were dead, but he made us alive. He chose us, in other words, there, Ephesians 2, 5. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, it means to mark out beforehand. And of course it says, those whom he predestined, he also called, Jesus called his disciples here, same idea. And those whom he called, he also did what? Justified. Justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you have the chain there. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Well, some say that, that God's not fair in doing that because he marked it out and has nothing to do with us. 
But Romans 9 says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. God never does anything wrong. Never does anything wrong. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. That's what Jesus says about our salvation. Does that mean we're not responsible? Absolutely not. We are responsible. We must be born again. We must turn. We are responsible. All are responsible who reject Christ. I do not know how to bring those two railroad tracks together. They're very different in some ways. People have tried to in various ways. But we do know they all do come together in eternity because Scripture actually says both. Well, they did come. It says they came. And I like that because he called. He called and they came. It's just like in salvation. He called them and they came and they were responsible. And they didn't do too good sometimes when they were under Jesus. So we are still responsible even if we are called. Responsible to be obedient. Very clearly. So Earlier, he called the four fishermen, Andrew and Peter and James and John. Chapter 2, he called Matthew. But now this is a different kind of calling here because this is for apostleship in this case. Verse 14, verse 14 says he appointed 12. He appointed 12 here. And notice that there's no definite article before the word 12. He didn't say he, he doesn't say he appointed the 12. It says he appointed 12. So no one could guess how many would be appointed if there were any to be appointed at all, if that was even about. He just appointed 12, and now it's clear how many it is, because it says it's 12 there. And then the question comes up, why 12? Why 12? Why did he appoint 12? I did a lot of thinking about that the last two weeks, and... Um, I don't think he did it because that was a convenient number for discipleship groups, although it kind of is. You know, our Saul groups, about 12 is really where they work the best. You get more than that, it gets a little bit cumbersome and we divide them up. Um, but I don't think that was a reason why. Was it just a number that he pulled out of the air? Was it a number that God gave him? Well, I'd have to say so because he and God are one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But why did he choose 12? And I believe that those who say this are right, that he chose 12 as a statement against Israel. Because we know it's obvious that the 12 apostles seems to be similar to the 12 patriarchs we have for the 12 tribes of Israel, isn't it? It seems to be a statement of almost like discipline for Israel that he would choose 12 now. So follow with me just for a moment. Remember in the early part of Jesus' ministry, one of the first public things that he did was to cleanse the temple, didn't he? He cleansed the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> he cleansed the temple. He went in, overturned tables and all those kinds of things and um, chastised the leaders there. And then what's one of the last things he does in his ministry? He goes back and cleanses the temple again. Now maybe the word cleanse is not the best word to use for that. 
because he was dealing with the wickedness that was in Israel right in the very heart of the religious heart of, of um, Israel, which was the temple. And so he turned over the tables and then he, he addressed the leaders here when he cleansed the temple because he called it a den of thieves and he called the religious leaders killers and vipers and vile and whitewashed tombs. Matthew 23 verse 29 shows us a little bit about this, quoting when Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Would not have been. And then he says in verse 33, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? He's talking about the corruption that was in the priesthood and in the spiritual leaders of Israel right in the very temple, the very heart of all of Israel there. And then, remember, later on in Mark chapter 13 and verse 2, Jesus says that, talking about the, about the temple, which was the key place, he says, there's coming a day when it's going to fall and not one stone will be left upon another there. That's the fall of Jerusalem, which did happen in 70 AD, less than a couple of decades later. And so there's all this kind of judgment that Jesus is talking about, and it seems like the 12 apostles is a symbol of judgment upon Israel for their sinfulness, and now we have the new covenant coming in. And not only that, when the temple is destroyed... As that happens, the whole worship system of the Old Covenant is done away with. You can't do it anymore because there's no place for sacrifice. And it's only the Apostles' doctrine of the New Testament that will work at that point. And not only that, in the future we see the 12 Apostles mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, where we have the new Jerusalem pictured in heaven, and that's the heavenly Jerusalem, and what are the names that are on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem? The apostles. Tells us right there in Revelation 21, 12 through 14. Their names are on the, their, the apostles' names are on the, the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. So it seems like what we have going on here is Jesus, by selecting the 12, is saying this is a statement against the corrupt, um, violated, uh, system of Israel that had become more and more corrupt as time went on and they'd added all these laws and things and so forth to make salvation a matter of works which it was not and so now with the apostles doctrine that would all change and the 12 apostles would be a statement of judgment upon Israel and the religious system for that so with the coming of the new covenant, we have the 12 now. Now this is not replacement theology. Let me just say that very clearly. It's not replacement theology because during the time of the last days, of course, we know that Israel will be back in the land as an ethnic nation and it certainly is not just a pipe dream. And the new Jerusalem will be part of it. So we have Jerusalem and Israel and we have the Apostles' Doctrine from the New Testament together there. So, now you know why there are 12. I think that's a very good reason why. 
But there's one more reason, and that's this. In Revelation 21, and um, verses 12 through 14, talks, excuse me, not Revelation 21, Revel, excuse me, Luke uh, 22, Jesus promised the 12 something. In Luke 22, verse 30, he talks about the future, and he says that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, talking about the future in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones. Now listen, you will sit on thrones do, uh, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now if that isn't clear, what is? What is? So pray for Israel. That's a message that comes out of pray for Israel. Well, he appointed 12. But now look at verse 14 again. It says, so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. So, what were these 12 guys going to do? There are apostles now, although it doesn't use the word right there. It's used in the other gospels and other places very clearly. Um, it doesn't mean the same as disciple. It means now those who are sent with a message. And they are sent with a message that has authority behind it. That would be the miracles they do. So, <clears throat> they were sent out to preach. And uh, that's really what a definition of an apostle is. Their message was to preach the, the apostles' doctrine, the new covenant, preach that Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. And that was their message. That was the message of the new covenant. Still is the message today. That's the message of the Great Commission that we preach also. But they preached it in a little different sense because they also had authority with it as they went. So it's called the Apostles' Doctrine. So how would people know that their message was for real since they didn't have a Bible? They didn't have a New Testament. They had the Old Testament. But they didn't have a New Testament to verify what they were saying was right about this Apostles' Doctrine. Well... They would know that it was not fake when the apostles would be able to do miracles and raise the dead and heal the sick and things of that nature. So when they would do that, they had this authority to do some miracles for a certain period of time to bring authenticity to their message, to sort of certify who they were, to bring authority to it. So they went out and they had this message and they had Miracles that they could do along with it. Now, some people have tried to do miracles on the same par, but if you look at the kinds of miracles Jesus' apostles did and so forth, you couldn't even begin to, to match it. Unless Satan was behind it, probably. So, they would cast out demons and they would heal people, but they would not do miracles. It's interesting. They would not do miracles in nature like Christ did, like stilling the waves and walking on water and causing fig trees to wither and so forth. That seemed to be something a little beyond them because it was for Jesus to do, showing his ultimate authority over nature as well. So he appointed ordinary men. That's now where we come to verse 14 to the end of the chapter now. Look at their names. He appointed the 12, Simon, whom he gave the name as Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee. And by the way, notice the conjunction and is between each of these. Kind of interesting here. And John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Borgnes, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, 
and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we look at this list, and we see a motley crew. The most unlikely people that you would ever select to do such a job. Simon, of course, was a fisherman. Uh, he was unstable. He lacked faith at times. He was denying Christ. He was vocal. He was accusing. But in the end, he was the pillar and the leader of all of them. It took that year for Jesus to get things together with these guys. He was called Peter, I mean rock. He was stable in the end. Andrew, pretty quiet guy. He was witnessing to people. We don't know too much more about him. He brought friends to Christ. James, son of Zebedee. Uh, he uh, was called the son, uh, with one of the others, called the sons of thunder there because um, they would want to call down fire as they did in Luke 9, they talked about calling down fire and the people they didn't like. Jesus said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. He became a pillar of a church also, James did. John, who was the brother of James, uh, also part of that group, the Sons of Thunder, very intolerant at the beginning, explosive and had selfish ambition, but became the apostle that was beloved in the church. And we think of him writing five books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Gospel of John, and Book of Revelation. Philip, calculating and analytical, pessimistic, pragmatic, and spiritually dull, some have said, but uh, became a leader of the second group here. Bartholomew, prejudiced, Old Testament student, Israelite indeed he was called, in whom there was no guile, and he was quick to believe. Thomas, the... Uh, the pessimist that was always questioning things, slow to believe perhaps, he just had that nature in him. But in the end, he was willing to die and he went to India, they, they say. And then, of course, Matthew, he was, uh, he was a tax man. He, he was a Jew that sold out to the Romans and uh, would tax the Jews, his own people, so that he could get some income off of that and then he give the rest to Rome. He was a traitor. Then there was James, the son of Alphaeus, known as James the Less. Probably means he was smaller, perhaps. And um, he became wise, humble pastor, wrote the book of James, many people believe. Thaddeus, he lacked understanding, and he was, but he was humble. And um, Simon the Zealot. The Zealot was different. He wasn't the fisherman kind of guy. He was a, he was a patriot. They were the kind of guys that would carry a knife inside their inside their, their tunic that they wore. And if you were against Israel, you'd pull it out and stab you. I don't know how that went when he met Matthew, who was sold out to the Romans. I think that would have been a little tense the first few times he met Matthew. But it worked out in the end. Um, and then we have Judas Iscariot. Of course, we know him. So they were all from just ordinary lives. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of education. They didn't have theology under their belt. They didn't have any of those things. They were pretty much mostly fishermen. We don't even know who all of them were or where they came from necessarily. But from Galilee, they were all from Galilee, which is the wrong side of the tracks to be from if you want to be anybody in that period of time. Except for one person. Do you know who was not from Galilee? It was Judas. He was from the right side of the tracks where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those dudes were. 
And he was the one who betrayed Christ. Of course, he was replaced by Matthias. And then we have, of course, the Apostle Paul making the 13th person later on. But keep in mind, he was to the Gentiles while the rest were pretty much to the Jews. So this is the greatest movement in all of history. It's the greatest youth movement in all of history. Young people, keep in mind, it is a youth movement. All these guys are pretty much in their 20s. Not too many of them probably in their 30s at all here. It's been said it's the greatest youth movement in all of history, and Christ often referred to them as little children. And the Apostle Paul, much later after he is saved, he mentions the 500 who saw Jesus after the resurrection at one time, 500, and he said, the greater part remain until now, which means that the ones that he's referring to that he saw were still alive, so they had to be young. By that time, Paul was that old to see them in that culture. And then, of course, we have Christ. He didn't write any books. He only trained these 12 men, and these men took on the ministry that he passed on to them. Mostly fishermen, some farmers, um, a Levite tax gatherer, and a few other people. We're not even sure who they all were. They were, by the way, it's very interesting. As they were appointed, they were appointed into three separate groups. Three separate groups. Starting with Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And Simon, Peter, is always the first guy in that group. And then the second group is Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. And all the lists, they're the same people. And um, Philip is always the first group mentioned in that list. And then James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. And, and those are the last four in the third group. And James is always the beginning. So there seems to be order in how Jesus appointed them with one person at the top of each of those, three, of those four people. The three that are remain underneath that kind of come in different orders in the different lists, but the first one is always the same. So three groups of four each with the same person at the beginning of each group showing that there was an ultimate design and plan of leadership in the whole thing at the end. So uh, we have a very interesting thing. Why did Jesus choose Judas? Judas was the last guy. Of course, he was... The only one that finds himself in the same place every time, and that's in the last member of the list. And, of course, he went out and committed suicide. So the uh, question is, uh, will, uh, what will we say with, about Judah? Did he do that? Um, did, he, did, he, did Jesus choose him even though he knew he would commit suicide? Did Jesus, was Jesus aware of this? Of course he was. You go and look at the scripture, it says very clearly that he was aware of it. And in the plan of God, God knew how this was all going to work out. And um, we won't talk about this anymore because we're running out of time. But anyway, it's good to know. So when we think of leadership and we think of our church and we think of our country, God uses ordinary people, doesn't he? He uses ordinary people. Someone said... A man once asked a theologian, why did Jesus choose Judas Iscariot to be his disciple? The teacher replied, I don't know, but I have an even harder question. Why did Jesus choose me? And why did he choose you? <laughs>